ahead and pull out your message notes. I'm really excited about today. I'm, I'm, I'm really pumped to share the word with you this morning. And really, it's a question that a lot of people are asking today. And it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're watching the same newscast that I'm watching, uh, really, we're seeing horrific things happen in our world today. We're seeing Christians martyred at an alarming rate. We are seeing murder widespread, not only throughout the world, but even in America. We're seeing the moral decline of people at a rapid rate greater than we've ever seen in history. Uh, we've seen the widespread of disease, things like the Ebola virus, the Zika virus. And so what we're looking at, and CNN and Time Magazine actually did a poll that about a third of all Americans have been reading their Bibles. They look at the Bible and what it says about the end times, and they're looking at the current events, and they're putting all these pieces together. And about a third of Americans are saying, hey, I think we're living in the last days. And so really everyone's thinking about it. And we want to find out this morning, what does the Bible say about this topic? What does the Bible say about are we living in the last days? And the Bible has a lot to say about it. Actually, there's lots of mentions of it in the Bible. One out of 30 verses in the Bible actually talks about the return of Christ, talks about the end of time or the second coming. So we look at it, and it's frequent in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament alone, and out of those 260 chapters, did you know there's 300 references to the end of the age, the second coming of Christ? So there's lots of references uh, in the Bible, especially the New Testament, about this. And 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament actually reference the second coming, this coming of Christ. And so there are a lot of information, a lot of things that he tells us about his second coming. And so when we're asking this question, what time, or, or, or we're asking the question, are we living in the last days, really as a society, what we're asking is, what time is is it? So pastor, are we living in the last days? People come up and ask me this all the time. In fact, through our survey, uh, there were over a thousand of you here in Easter, about 1,245 people showed up. The Easter is a little bit different where everybody decides to show up in one day. And so you showed up and you took a survey. And one of the things that we do is in the survey, ask a question, what is the topic you want to hear about? And you said, hey, are we living in the last days? And you asked it, why? Because really what you're asking is, what time is it? Like, hey, pastor, like, hey, uh, what, what time is it? Like, is it, is it right here? Like, is Jesus about to come back in the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, maybe years? Is he coming back soon? Or, or this is the thing is, pastor, are we living here? Because if we're living right there, then I've got a little bit of time, right? I mean, it's a question of urgency. And so, Pastor, are we living there? Are we living here? I mean, what time is it? Are we living in the last days? And so I want to just dive right into God's Word. We're going to go into a lot of Scripture this morning. Everybody smile for me. Y'all look so intense. You're like, is the rapture coming right now? <laughs> like, everybody just take a breath. It's not a doom and gloom. He's, he's not like get saved right now. He's coming right now. So everybody smile, smile, breathe. Wow, that's the most intense I've ever seen you guys. <laughs> I just going to go through some scripture, and I, I want to lay a foundation. And really with so many things that the Bible talks about, I just want to hit that. 
and lay that foundation. And then what we'll do is we'll talk about what do we do to get ready. So it's in Matthew 24, verse 3. And this is where the disciples actually come to Jesus. This topic is not new to us. The disciples were actually asking questions. Hey, are we living in the last days? Like, is this the end? And look at what he says. It says in verse 3, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? So in other words, they're saying, hey, Jesus, what time is it? Hey, when's, when's this going to happen? I mean, you know, is, are, is it now? Like, when is it? And then they said, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Matthew chapter 24, if you haven't read it, is a great chapter where Jesus actually tells us about the times. He tells us about the end of the age. But the interesting thing about this chapter is Jesus goes into detail about what some of the signs will be, what it will be like, but he never actually tells us when. In fact, in verse 36, Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. So it's an interesting uh, chapter because he gives us signs, but then he says, listen, nobody knows when the last days will be. So if someone said, pastor, are we living in the last days? Can I just be honest? I don't know. You're like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted a time and a date. And I will tell you this, I think we could be living in the last days. And now here's the caveat that even the writers in the New Testament thought they were living in the last days, and it's been 2,000 years since then, so that's the caveat. Everybody has thought they were living in the last days. But I will tell you there are a few things that have happened in our generation that have not happened since that I believe have set us up that we could be living in the last days. The first one is, in 1948, Israel reemerged as a nation. It's one of the things the Bible talks about, Israel coming back together. The other thing is that later in Matthew, he says, when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then I'll come back. And we are living in a day and age where the gospel is widespread. It's prolific. It's being spread across the world in a rapid rate, unlike any other generation. It seems as if that is almost fulfilled. If not, it's been fulfilled. That technology, think about this, we, we have Bible colleges on thumb drives. You have the entire Bible on thumb drives where you used to would have to go into a country, set up Bible colleges to train pastors to go into indigenous uh, people groups. Now it's actually on a thumb drive. All you got to do is get them solar power, a laptop, and they go, go to Bible college in their remote village in the world. Never has that ever happened until our generation. So the advances of technology, and also in the book of Revelation, when you read about the end time and the tribulation, the Revelation talks about two witnesses that are actually killed. And many scholars believe it's Moses and Elijah as witnesses to the world. And it says that when they are killed, that the whole world would be able to see. Well, not until the invention of satellite television would we have been able to see an event all the way across the world where the entire world can watch one event together. So it seems as if we are living in the last days. And I could really go on and on about all the different signs that tend to point to us living in the last days. But let's look at what the Bible has to say. In fact, the Apostle Peter uh, says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-10, through 10, I want to read through what he's talking about for the signs of the end of the age. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3-10. through 10. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, everybody say last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. 
So they're going to do what they want to do. They're going to say, where is this coming that you promised? So in other words, listen, for 2,000 years you've said that the end was near. For 2,000 years you said he's coming back generation after generation. And they're going to scoff. They're going to say, listen, we're going to do what we want to do. Where is this coming of your Christ, of your Messiah? He hadn't come back. And ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So God picked a day, and this is what we know as the creation moment. Genesis chapter 1, he created the heavens and he created the earth. Then it says, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, he's talking here that the world, the, the world was destroyed by the great flood. We know this of Noah and the ark, that everyone was destroyed, everything was destroyed, except for Noah, his family, and the animals that were in the ark. And he goes on, he says, by the same word, God's going to pick another day. So he's going to pick another day. So, so just as he picked a day and he created the heavens and the earth, he's going to pick another day, and this is what he's going to do. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. So he said he would never destroy the earth through flood. That's why we have the rainbow. He made a promise. But now what he's going to do is he's going to pick a day, and he's going to destroy the earth, but it's going to be through fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then verse 8, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, uh, a day is as a thousand years, and as a a thousand years is as a day. So here Peter's talking about God's time, that he's not in chronos time, sequential, chronological time, that God to him, it's, it's not a matter of just minutes. It's one day is like a thousand years. And so he could be saying, listen, God's not slow as we see him being slow. For God, he, he transcends time. Now, Jewish scholars actually don't believe that. They believe something different. They believe in what we call a seven-day earth. That the earth is going to be here for 7,000 years and that each day represents 1,000 years. And so for the Jewish scholars, what that would mean is that there were 4,000 years from Adam until Christ. There were 2,000 years from Christ until now. And then that means there's six days, 6,000 years have transpired. Everybody's like, praise God. Pastor, that means we're right here. Right? You got a thousand years. Anybody do your math? Like a thousand. But the challenge with that is that's not what Jewish scholars believe. Jewish scholars believe that the last thousand years is what we call the millennial reign. This is when Christ comes back to the earth and he rules on the earth for a thousand years. So according to Jewish scholars, this is what they would believe. They actually believe that we are more right here. That the thousand year reign is right upon us and it it is near. And so you say, Pastor, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, it could be, it seems like that's where we're at. And then Jesus goes on, I love in verse 9, he says, But the Lord is not slow in keeping with his promise. As As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you. Everybody say patient. Not wanting that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. So this is how we see it, that that he's taking his time in the second coming. Why? Because he wants people to be saved. He wants you to turn back and to repent. Hell was never intended for us. It wasn't intended for you. It wasn't intended for the people around you. It was intended for the devil and all his cronies. And so Jesus... 
died on this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again so that we might be saved as we turn to repentance. And so he, he, we see that he's patient because he wants us and, and mankind to be saved. And he goes on in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So what does that mean? That means we don't know when he's coming back. We don't have a clue as to when he's coming back. So, so I'm not going to be able to answer your question specifically this morning. It says the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godless lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So what do we learn from Peter? Here's a couple of things we learned. The first one is this. People will be distracted. People will be distracted. They're going to follow their own appetites. They're going to do what they want to do. They're going to live how they want to live. They're going to be self-centered. They're going to think just about themselves. And so through the scripture, what we've got to do is we've got to be careful. The warning is, be careful how you live. Why? Because he could come back at any moment. Like a thief in the night, we've got to make sure that we're not distracted. Now, I love this, that God loves us. He wants us to turn to repentance. He blesses us. He gives us great things and blessings. But we've got to be careful that the blessings of God don't distract us from the real thing, which is the reality of heaven, that we are passing through this life. It's fleeting. It's, it's not going to last long, but we are actually just passing through this place. Isn't that what James chapter 4, verse 14 says? It says that your life is a mist. It appears for a little while, and then it just vanishes, just vanishes. And so what we have to be careful of is that we don't live our lives in such a way that we're distracted, that we're complacent, but we say, no, I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to live with urgency in my life. Matthew 24, 37, this is Jesus talking again. Look at what he says. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day of Noah and the time he entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So what does that mean? That means they were distracted, and when they woke up to what time it was, it was too late. This is what I know. The devil doesn't have to destroy you as long as he can distract you. So sometimes we can think, well, he's coming to destroy me. No, the greatest thing he could do in your life many times is to distract you and to make you unaware of the season that we are living in. The second thing Peter says is that people are going to forget God. People are going to forget God. We see this played out in our generation like never before, that people are forgetting God. And there, there's an interesting study by the Barna Group that I want to share with you and show you. And it talks about the decline of Bible-based, Bible-believing Christians in America. There's four generations that they chronicle. And look at the first one, the builder generation from 1927 to 1945, the builder generation. And so this is the generation of our grandparents, those that have passed and those that are still living. They are 65% Bible-based believers. So the generation of our grandparents, 65% Bible-based believers. They love God. They serve God. They went to church. It's amazing. How many had grandparents that went to church? 
Come on, we all raised our hands, 65%. Then there's the boomer generation. This is from 1946 to 1964. They are 35% Bible-believing, Bible-based Christians. Now, these are the people that are leading our country right now. These are the presidents, the congressmen, the senators, the pastors, those that are the CEOs. That's the generation that's leading our nation right now. 35% of them are Bible-based believers. Then we go into the buster generation. This is my generation. So these are people that were actually born from 1965 to 1983. I was born in 1977. I know I don't look like it. And so this is our generation, if you were born in that time. And so of our generation, about 16% are Bible-believing, Bible-based Christians. And then we go down to the millennial generation, or what they call the Bridger generation, and those that were born from 1984 until now, and here's the trend that's taking place. Only 4% of those are Bible-believing, Bible-based Christians. That's exactly my sentiment. Wow. How many see a trend of what's happening? We see our grandparents, then we see our parents, and then for me, you see our generation, then the next generation. That's why we're so passionate about reaching the next generation. Listen, that's why we invest so heavily in Youth Can Lead. That's why we invest in Impact Night. That's why we invest in our students. We don't believe that they're the future. We believe they're the now, that they can come to church. They don't have to sit down and shut up and be quiet, but they can actually go out and make a difference. They can serve and high-five and help in the children's ministry and usher. Why? Because we're trying to reach a generation. Listen, some of you might not like skinny jeans. You might not like lights. You might not like the smoke. But this is what I know. That generation and our generation does. And we're trying to reach a generation that is dying and going to hell. So we've got to have a church that is relevant to where they live so that we don't die as a church. Isn't that the problem that we see with churches? It's not that the gospel's not being preached. I believe this. There are lots of great churches where the gospel is being preached. The problem is they haven't taken enough time to make the gospel relevant to this generation. Did you know Jesus broke down the gospel in parables so that people would understand? Why does the gospel have to be so complex that we isolate a generation that doesn't understand? My passion, why? Because, man, they're dying and going to hell. These are our kids. These are our neighbors. And, and, and listen, I know this, that God has called us as a church to help that generation know God. Can I get an amen? Peter says this. The third thing is this. People are not going to be ready. People are not going to be ready. Matthew 24, Jesus uh, reiterates this. It says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. So they're not going to be ready. One's going to be ready, someone else is not going to be ready. You'll be by each other, one will be taken and one will be left. First Thessalonians, which is another chapter that talks about the end time, says this. It says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. So I know there are some of you that might have come today and said, Pastor, where are the charts? Where are the graphs? Like, listen, I was expecting you to timeline it out, give us some dates, give us some predictions. This is what I would say. Have fun. Go and do it. I mean, it's fun. Have you read it? I mean, I've read the second, you know, the Blood Moon. I've read all the, and it's awesome, man. Tim LaHaye, all these great books, all the, it, it's a great thing, but this is what I would tell you. Do it in pencil. 
Why? Because the Bible's clear. Nobody knows the time nor the hour. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And so here's the key that I think we got to walk away with. Some of you wanted me to tell you my predictions, but this is what I would say. It's really not about us knowing what time it is. It's just that we need to know what to do with the time we have left. Right? I mean, because for us, it's the last days. I know this, that I've only got a few more years in my life, and it is my last days. And so what do we do about this? How do we live? Peter actually talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. And I'm going to outline this last part of the message and just give us some clear steps. Whether he comes back quickly, whether it's another generation, I know this, this is your last generation, this is your last time, this is my last time, and the Bible's very clear. We're not to look at if he's coming back right now, but we're to live as if he is. Okay, how do we do it? The first one in verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert. Everybody say alert. And sober mind, so that you may praise. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be alert. We have to live in this generation with alertness. We've got to make sure that we're looking at the sign of what's taking place and aware of what's happening around us and make sure that in our minds we've got to think clearly. Listen, I know God, I believe you're coming back. I think it's in this generation. It could be tomorrow, the next month, the next year. But I know this, regardless of when you come back, I choose to live alert. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be aware of what's happening. Why? Because it leads us to prayer. How many know when you look at politics, when you look at the war, when you look at uh, terrorism and all these things, you shouldn't be afraid. You're a Christian. I'm not afraid. It makes me pray more. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this dark hour. God, that there is no devil in hell that can beat you, that can take down your kingdom. And so, God, I'm going to be the salt and the light because greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. Why? I'm just going to be alert. I'm not going to fall asleep and be pacified by all the great things that society has to offer us. I am going to be alert. I'm going to think about the eternal. Did you know the eternal is more real than the natural and the temporal? Sometimes all we see is what we can feel, taste, touch, and what's around us. But did, did you know, I love what Pastor Steve said a couple of weeks ago when he shared his message about the timeline of our life. We are just this little bitty dot, this little dash in the natural compared to all of eternity. And so if we're going to be alert, praying helps us keep an eye on eternity. That this stuff, God, thank you for blessing me with a nice house and nice car and all that, but I'm not going to let the stuff have me. I'm going to have the stuff, and I'm going to keep an eye on eternity. In fact, the Bible says that we are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. I love the way the message lays it out. It says, but there's far more life to, far more to life for us. We are citizens of high heaven. What does that mean? That your citizenship is not here. This isn't all there is to offer you in your life. We are citizens of heaven. We're waiting for the arrival of a Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like His own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which He is putting everything as it should be under and around Him. So we're waiting for His arrival. God, I'm waiting for you, Lord. And in that, Lord, I'm going to be alert. Did you know this, that 62% of Americans believe that Jesus is coming back, but only 8% live as if he is? So there is a disparity in that. There's this, 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 
this thing of, man, I, I, I kind of believe, but that belief is not producing any action in our life. Let us be a church that we live as if he's coming back today. That God, to the very last breath of my day today, when I lay my pillow on my head, that I have given everything of my life, every ounce of me, every ounce of emotion, every ounce of intellect, every ounce of my energy to reach people, to love people, and to go out and to win for you the reward of your sacrifice. We just got to... Love each other. So we just, we gotta, we gotta love people enough to be alert and to go and do something about it. Verse 8, he continues, he says, Above all else, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So here Peter's saying, because the days are evil, because it's the last days, because this is the end as we know it, listen, you've gotta love each other deeply. So what's he saying? He's saying this, you've got to focus on relationship. So not only do I need to be alert, but listen, we've got to focus on relationships. Now, it's interesting here, he's saying, you know, because we're in the last days, why, why, why is it? Why, why are we loving people and loving each other? It's because people are what really matter. You know, God's not coming back. Jesus isn't returning back for buildings He's not returning back for programs. He's not returning back for stuff. Who's he coming back for? He's coming back for people. And that's the greatest treasure that we could have in our lives is the value of relationships. And really, quite honestly, that's why us as a church, we're a small groups church. The value is not really what happens here on Sunday. Listen, I hope you get something out of it. I hope it inspires you. But the goal is that you would go back on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and even today at 2 o'clock they got a football small group. But the goal is this, that you would live in relationship. Why? Because people are what matter. People are what matter. He's coming back for people that relationships are the key to our life. It's really the currency of our life. It's how many great relationships do you have? Do you love people unconditionally? You cannot love people through di digital media. Did you hear me? You can't love people through. Now, you can like everything they're doing. Oh, you give them a heart. You give them a thumbs up. You can give them a smiley face. And you can like this stuff, but can I tell you, relationship happens face to face, heart to heart, shoulder to shoulder. All those likes can deceive you that you've got great relationships, but the truth is relationships happen in person. And there is no other way to do it outside of small groups. These little group gatherings of people getting together and living life together. I, I had a blast this last week. Uh, somebody in my small group said, hey, pastor, you want to come shoot some skeet? I'm like, oh, yeah. Got us some guns. You know how Texans love our guns and got us some guns. And we, we have our men's small group where we're going through these, this book together and we're doing life together. And he invited us. And so me and my whole family, we went out there and we got some 12-gauge shotguns. And he's throwing skeet. He's got a skeet throwing. We're shooting. And the whole time we're talking about how is your life? It's good. What's going on? Well, I'm struggling this. This is what's taking place. And getting to know the families and getting to do life together. We're eating together. My kids are jumping off the stairs in their house and, and seeing all the crazy I'm like hold up settle down calm down but the beauty of that is this that our families are getting to spend time together they're getting to know one another we're doing life together why because relationships matter it doesn't happen digitally it only happens when we focus on that in our life then he goes on in verse 9, he says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift that you have received to serve others. Say, serve others. 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. So the end of all things is near. So what's the third thing is this? you got to engage your gift. you got to engage your gift. What God has given you on the inside, he gave you for a purpose. Now, I remember Phyllis and I, when we first got married, uh, we had one of our Christmases together. It was one of our houses that we had just bought. And I never forget we had more love than we had money. More passion than finances. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so it's Christmas, and I remember it was cold outside, and Phyllis had her cup of coffee. I didn't drink coffee back then. It wasn't until we started the church. So I had my cup of hot chocolate, and we're sitting down, and the Christmas tree is a little bit bare, and it was Christmas before we go into the in-laws and experience Christmas there. And I just remember it was just a great time of just this this her and I celebrating, and she had some presents, and we were passing presents back and forth, and all of a sudden, there was this red present under the tree. It was wrapped in Santa Claus's face, and she said, hey, that last present, Jim, that's, that's for you. I thought, well, that's great, you know. That's awesome. It was a pretty good-sized Christmas present. I mean, that's a, yeah, and I do the finances, so I thought, man, she must have pulled one over on me. I, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like, I know how much she spent, and so anyway, we're, we're doing, she hands it to me, and I'm looking at the present. I'm just thinking, man, that, that's good. It looks, shake it up. Anybody ever shake the gift and trying to figure it out? And she's kind of chuckling. And, and so then I just begin to tear the wrapping paper off and just kind of letting the suspense build. And then I ripped it off, and all of a sudden it was a cordless craftsman drill set. Oh, my man. Blake. I mean, it was a good gift. Like, I'm thinking, man, this is, I don't even know how she did it. And, you know, I was so excited. I just remember, man, this is awesome. Like, it's cool. You know, guys get gifts like that. We're excited and thought it was amazing. We go on to the in-laws Christmas and we come back. It's late that night. It's probably like 9 o'clock and sitting down. And she said, hey, honey. I said, yeah, baby. You know, I'm so excited about what she gave me and thinking about all. She said, you remember that drill I gave you? I said, yeah. She said, would you mind helping me hang some of those pictures that have been laying on the floor for three months. How do you know women are awfully smart? That gift had a purpose. I thought it was something else, but she had something totally different in mind. So this is what I would tell you. The gift God has given you has a purpose. Yeah. And so the challenge is this. Many of us sit in church week in and week out. We're going to heaven. Salvation is secure. We love God. But you never unwrap the gift that God gave to you that's on the inside of you. Therefore, you can never do what God intended you to do. And then you've got to know this. That gift is not just for you to use to go make lots of money, to get promoted in your job. Those are good things in and of themselves. But God gave you that gift. Why? Because we're living in the last days. Why? Because the days are evil. Why? Because He wants you to go out and Use that gift to serve other people. So we serve other people through the gift, God, but you got to unwrap it. And that's why we have next steps. That's why we talk about it every single week. Why? Because the value is not you having a gift. That gift could have sat under the tree for years and I would have never been able to use it. But it wasn't until I discovered what it was, unwrapped it, got it out the box and could use it that it made a difference. 
And so in your life, listen, unwrap the gift that God has given you. That there is a purpose that He gave you. You say, I'm an accident. No, God never makes accidents. You're not an accident. He created you with a purpose. So let's discover why He created us. And that's what I love about the church. One of the whole processes in the whole foundation. We have four foundations that we built this church on. Sunday morning services, small groups, next steps, and dream team. The whole next steps process is so that you discover that gift, and then, this is the beauty of it, we help you find a place where you can engage that gift. Why? Because the end of all things is near. That we engage the gift that God gave to us. And then the last thing is this, we got to live with urgency. we got to live with urgency. Live with urgency. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. This is the message version. It says, but we make sure that you don't get so, or, but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all the day-by-day obligations so that you lose track of time and doze off oblivious to God. So he's saying, listen, you got to make sure that you're alert. Stay alert. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on salvation's work. He began when we first believe. We can't afford to waste a minute. We must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence in sleeping around in dissipation, in bickering, in grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed. Get dressed. Don't loiter. Don't linger. Don't wait until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and get up and about. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, we have to live with urgency. We've got to live as if Christ is coming back right now. That every person in our generation, we don't wait till the future, we don't wait till later, but right now there is a sense of urgency that we live with. We live with urgency. Let me ask you this. Has anybody ever lived in a situation or been in a situation where you ran out of time? Anybody? I had something happen just recently. Carson and I were flying up to Cleveland, Ohio, and now my kids are old enough when I go and travel and do events. Many times what I do is I take one of them with me, and so Carson, it's his very first time, and we're flying out a hobby. Anybody seen hobby lately? It is a mess. Like they're building terminals, and it's now going to be an international airport. And So we're going to fly out of Hobby Airport, and we're going to Cleveland, and Carson's with me. He's excited. It's his first time, so I have his birth certificate, and he's like, Dad, is today the day? No, babe, we got two more days. Gets up, and Dad, is today the day? No, we got one more day. Dad, is today the day? Yeah, today's the day. Come on, let's get packed up. We're heading to the airport. So then we get to the airport, and you know me, I, I've flown a lot in my life. I like to think I'm a veteran flyer. Like, like I got it, you know, you kind of breeze, easy breezy. We got this thing whooped. And so I, I know how to time it to where we get to the airport in just enough time. I don't want to run through the airport. Any of you runners? I know you do. You're last minute. You're running through the airport. I, I don't like to run like that. I like to take my time. And we get to the airport, and there's plenty of time. And so we go through security. It took us a little bit longer than before, but we make it to the gate. It was uh, gate two. I forget, gate two. You know, we got our boarding pass. 30 minutes for the board to board a plane and Carson and I are sitting down we're just chatting and he's like dad this is cool I'm like yeah it's cool man and uh, we see some people start getting off the plane because they always 
deboard the first plane and then you get onto the plane they just deboarded and we're seeing people walk off and I'm thinking, all right, man, we, we're going to board in just a few minutes and Carson says, hey, Dad, hey, are we at the right gate? I said, yeah, Carson, yeah, we're at the right gate. It's a silly, come on, silly question. Yes, we're at the right. I mean, I'm a veteran flyer. Got my wings. So Carson asked me again, says, Dad, are we at the right gate? I said, yeah, man. And for some reason, I, I don't know why, it's probably the Holy Spirit, but he's sitting there and he's all antsy. And, he's, and I said, Carson, look at your ticket. He said, yeah, it says gate two. And didn't really read the rest of it. And so then he says, Dad, are we at the right gate? I said, Carson, we're at the right gate. Just go ask. Go ask the gate attendant. Just go. And so he gets up and he walks over and he says, ma'am, and he's just about this tall and he's looking up. He says, are we at the right gate? And, you know, I'm just thinking, just appeasing, just appeasing. Just... And she's looking at him and she's pointing and he's looking and he looks up and she's pointing. And then pointing again, he comes back. He says, dad, dad, we're at the wrong gate. <laughs> Don't lie. I'm like, what? what do you mean we're at the wrong gate? He said, no, no. She said, there's another terminal. This is in the new terminal, and we're at the wrong gate. And so now I'm looking at where we had 15 minutes. We're good. Now we got to get to the other side of the terminal into a whole new section. So we grab our stuff. We start walking fast. I'm like, hey, bro, we got to walk fast. He's like, all right, all right. Then all of a sudden, paging James Kyles and Carson Kyles, the flight is about to leave. I said, bro, when they say your name, it ain't good. <laughs> so we start running. And so I'm so out of shape. And Carson, I'm like, Go, run, Carson, run, Carson, run. <laughs> True story. Stuff is flying out of our backpacks. and <laughs> So embarrassed. They're like first-time flyers. Carson. Get to the gate. Just leave your old man. Just get there. If you get there, they won't shut the door. And lo and behold, we were literally the last people. They shut the door right behind us. Our ignorance brought about complacency. We were just complacent. We're chilling, man. We're good. We were ignorant that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time about to miss our flight. And this is what I would say for everybody living in the last days. Don't be ignorant as a Christian. Listen, just live with urgency. I, I'm going to double check. God, I'm going I'm to live my life. I'm not going to allow sin to cause me to fall asleep. I love one of the, the, the translations in the messages says, be wide awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't allow yourself to slumber. How many know it's easy to become complacent and it's easy to get comfortable? Why? Because we live in a nice house. We got nice cars. We make a decent salary. Our family is decent and nice and we're not the best, but we're not the worst. And it's easy for us to just say, hey, I'm okay. I'm good. This is a nice life. Can I tell you, we've got to live with urgency. That there are people that are dying and going to hell that are going to miss it. If we don't say, God, help us live with urgency. Let us be a church that storms the gates of hell. That we never become complacent. That God, we live with urgency. What does that mean? That means I read my Bible. I worship. I spend time with God. Why? Because the end is near. Our generation, I don't know. I know this. The Bible says you're not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised tomorrow. This is the end of my generation. I'm going to die in not so many years from now. So I know this. I've got to live my life with everything I can.